Welcome to Jazz Avec Moi, the podcast where we will talk about everything from life, career, and entrepreneurship from a TCK perspective. My name is Michaela Mutoni, and I will be your host. Thank you so much, Giselle, for being with me here today. I'm excited. It's been a long time coming. I'm excited that you have finally going full hard on this. So for those of you who might not know today's guest, uh, her name is Giselle Karekezi. And I met her when we both started undergrad at McGill. We were just both moving into res and we both realized that we had been assigned as roommates. And we're like the only Africans in our res. Right? Like putting the two Africans together to avoid issues. <laughs> Anyways, here we are, 10 years later, thankfully done with undergrad. And we're still friends, so I guess it worked out. Yes. <laughs> so I brought Giselle on the podcast today because she has an interesting background. She studied political science and African studies and ended up in tech. I wanted to talk to her about basically that transition and how she feels about being in tech, especially as a black woman. We can talk about that. And yeah, and, and where she sees herself going in the future. So Giselle, I guess my first question for you is when you were studying political science and African studies at McGill, how did you start thinking about tech? Like, how did you not become a policy analyst or something like that? It's kind of funny, actually, because if I think about my past, I actually feel like I ended up where I was meant to end up in the sense of obviously I was raised in France and in France, the way that the education system works, you have different paths, right? So you either go in the scientific path or the economics path or the literature path, right? And I was always on the scientific side of things. So very much uh, that's kind of like my background when it comes to high school, like middle school and high school. And and something changed in my last year, in my last year of high school. It's kind of stereotypical, but I was so enraged. I was very passionate about the election at Obama, Obama's election. I would spend hours on it every day. I would watch CNN, watch all of that, just be on it all the time. I was so on it that even in my English class, my professor actually realized that and made me kind of the news person in English class. So I would update the class on the latest on the election every day, every time we had a class to the whole class. So I just realized how much I enjoyed politics and more of kind of like, and I really wanted to mix politics and media because us coming from Rwanda, I've always been obsessed with media. Media, media representation and how media can actually influence and have positive or very much negative aspect to how society works and how people see themselves and identify themselves and see the other. And it just kind of felt like it kind of collided that year in, in high school. And instead of going, because I was like, at McGill, I was accepted both in business and political science. So I decided to go to political science and just kind of that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to become a political analyst on a TV show one day in the future. You know, I didn't know that. You didn't know? No, I knew you <laughs> wanted to do PR. We talked about that, but I didn't know you actually had this goal of being a political analyst on a TV show. Yeah, but I mean, being a political analyst, kind of just doing PR yeah. for yourself and what you believe in your opinions. I mean, that's just it. I was obsessed with media representation. I've always been upset. I'm still very much obsessed with that. And politics has such an influence on our lives both of our lives and even people's lives in general that it just felt like it was the right path 
to go into. And I mean, I had a very difficult time at McGill. Like, let's just say we have a love and hate relationship with the university. I think I remember But ultimately... <laughs> ultimately which was funny is that even though i went into political science and african study a lot of my best friends were engineers and i even ended up being on the board of the nesby which is national society of black engineers which is the biggest student association for black engineers around the world and i was on it i was uh, the treasurer actually even if i was not in engineering yeah <laughs> i remember that i've always kind of kept that connection to the scientific Wall. And when I finished my girl, I had a like a nine month stint in Abidjan in Ivory Coast for an internship in the mining industry or on the business development. And I came back to Canada in the mindset of wanting to do kind of doing investor relations, just kind of like a mix of PR and business within the mining space. And I went to Toronto and I came to you. I lived with you and I was like, I remember that Yo, that time was so hard. It was such a hard time. Having to deal with coming back to the Canada, no revenue, just trying to figure things out, not, not necessarily knowing where we want to go. And obviously my time at McGill was kind of, it was really hard. So I had a hard time. That impacted. A lot of things happened during my time in university and that impacted my grades. So I didn't have the best grades either during that time, just because of what happened to me during that time. And I remember I was looking for an internship at a public relation firm because I wasn't going to go back to school for PR just out of a limb. I just need to make sure that that's something that I really wanted to do. So I did find an internship in Toronto. And after the internship, I decided to go back to McGill to be able to do a certificate in public relations and communications. And when I arrived there, obviously during my time, when you're in Toronto, you learn how to hustle. And the hustling is about just finding any type of initiative and volunteering for it and just kind of learning through the hoops. That's just it. So when I arrived back in Montreal, I was looking for any type of initiative, any type of opportunity opportunity that I could latch on to as I was going to school at the same time. So two friends of mine who are both engineers wanted to organize a hackathon. Mind you, I didn't know anything about what a hackathon was. So basically a hackathon is a tech event where you bring together like developers. In that time it was just mainly like just tech people, just because that's one type of hackathons. In other hackathons, you can have developers, design entrepreneurs coming together, working together on a project to bring to life a project over the course of a weekend, playing with the technology and just trying to solve something to solve a problem. My friends were passionate about hardware technology, more specifically wearables and IoT. So I wanted to organize a hackathon for them to be able to have access to more technology, more hardware, and to be able to kind of allow people to have access to these type of technologies because a lot of times when hardware startups start releasing their product, they only have a certain amount of quantity. And because of that, it ends up being very expensive for anyone to buy the first ones, right? So it's not necessarily accessible to everyone, most certainly not when you're a student or if you're coming for whatever background where you don't necessarily have the means to be able to buy that. So Hackathon was the perfect opportunity to bring that type of technology to anyone who was just really interested in learning more about this kind of thing. So I went to the meeting, the volunteering meeting, and my two friends basically were explaining what that was and what they wanted to accomplish. And they started kind of asking what we wanted to do. A lot of people were really shy. I was not really shy about what I know. I was coming from a PR internship, so where I had done a lot of support around event management. So I just kind of took over the event management aspect of it. <laughs> and we ended up organizing the biggest kind of wearables and IoT hackathon in North America at that time. 
time. And it was right during the time where wearables and IoT was kind of like the trend of the year. So there was a lot of excitement about the technology. And we realized how much people really wanted to have access to those things. And that event was so inspiring to me in the sense of we saw from a very young age to a very old range of people coming together to build and to just kind of try this technology. But at the same time, it wasn't just building for the sake of building. They were like actually trying to build things that were very interesting. Like some of them had solutions to support like women's safety when they're moving around. Or, or just trying to be able to build solutions around, you know, heart monitoring or something, a lot of health related solutions. And I was just really inspiring because in my mind, I was like, what the hell was I doing 17? Like, I'm 18, a 20 year old. And I realized that technology could be a very powerful tool to be able to solve a lot of the societal issues and health issues and any type of challenges that we are confronting as human beings. And I just really wanted to be a part of that. And more specifically, I wanted to be able to find a way to build this thing up so that we could ultimately bring this back to Africa. Because for me, having Africans working this type of project and using new technologies to be able to solve some of the biggest issue, like baseline challenges that we have back home, would be incredibly powerful. Just kind of seeing the type of solutions that could come up the type of access that could be brought up through this in Africa, it just kind of made me even more passionate about the project, about bringing it up to life and growing it. So we decided to create a nonprofit around hardware education so that hardware could be not only accessible, but just kind of approachable. Because a lot of people, when they think about hardware, they are very kind of intimidated, whether it's tech people or just non-tech people. Like this hardware is very difficult in their mind. It's not as a approachable from a technical perspective and from a financial perspective as well, or just knowing what that is. So that's kind of how I got into the tech industry, just through friendships and realizing how much the tech industry could basically solve a lot of issues that were very important to me. So issues related to the development of Africa. That's actually a very good point, because I think what people don't realize and I didn't realize either until I went back to school and did my MBA is that you can be in the tech world and you can be in technology without being a technical person. You know, like you just have to find a way to leverage the skills that you have in that space, you know, like it's any other business because like you, it's a question of exposure because you, you learned about it, talking through it with your friends who are engineers. Me, I went back to school and then I started seeing all these companies come recruiting and I was like, wait, that's an option. I didn't know that was an option. (laughs) I mean, that's so important. Like access is so important. And I think access is not, when we're talking about access, it's not just having access to the technology, it's having access to the information, knowing that there is, that's an option. And at the end of the day, if you're talking about the tech industry, you're talking about companies and companies are not run by the technical team. And even in the product, you have to account for the marketing from the product people. It's not just technical abilities that are needed. Yeah, not everybody has to be a software developer. Not everyone has to be a software developer. A company needs 
everything. It needs HR, it needs PR, it needs business skills, it needs sales skills, like those non-technical skills or what's going to make or break a company at the end of the day. I travel a lot because obviously now I work for a company called Angel Heart and I manage Europe for the company and I travel all over Europe. And one of the things I realized, for example, when you go to Eastern Europe, the technical skills are amazing. So you have amazing products that are built, but at the end of the day, there is a lack of marketing and sales that very much impacts the level at which some of these startups are going to make it at a European level, even at a global perspective, right? Yeah, exactly. And so wherever we come from, whatever we are background is, there is a way to work in the tech industry. And I always like to say to people, at the end of the day, nowadays we live in the digital world. You're building a company, you're are an activist, you are a creative. If your work is not online, if you're not able to reach people through digital means, if you aren't savvy in the digital world, you're going to have very little impact compared to what you could have by plugging into the digital space, which is basically where everyone is. That means that everything you do, every company at the end that it is a digital company, if you think about it, your product might not be a tech product, but the means through which you have to build your company and grow your company is going to be digital. Oh, that's so true, too. Actually, I hadn't even thought about it the way you just said it, because everything is online now. If you think about it, we are online. Like I will first go research a product online before I go in store, or if I even go in store, because I can always buy it and return it. You know, so any company, any product without an online presence becomes somehow irrelevant a little bit. I was actually even having a discussion with a financial advisor that I met randomly and he was telling me he didn't have any more business cards. And I was like, okay, what's your website? Because I wanted to go check him out and he didn't have a website. And I was like, what do you mean? It's so crazy to me. It's insane to me. But he was like in his 40s, you know, and he had moved from Congo, I think, you know. So for him, it was about the relationships and it was about talking to people. And I told him, I told him, I was like, you know, you need to go online because even if you had given me your business card, I would have gone to look for you online to see you, to see what your website looks like, to see if you have any references or anything like that. And he was part of a network of financial advisors and he was like, yes, they've told me I need to go online and they said that they can even help me. And I was like, yeah, you should really make that a priority. I think for us, it comes very easily because we're the millennials, quote unquote, and we're so used to the internet, but that's where the world is going, you know? So I think everybody sort of has to catch up and try to get access to an online presence. Yeah, it's very important for us as Africans, as Black people, to very much understand that. Because at the end of the day, I always say, whatever I do in my life, I always come with the mindset that I want to be able to figure out how we as a people can benefit from this. How is my work or my presence, the way that I think and see things is going to be for us. That's just kind of how I function. And even from a digitalization perspective, even our interpersonal relationships are very much digital nowadays. We are a globalized world. We don't spend all our lives in one space, in one place. So we communicate online most times, right? We keep up online. If we're looking at the jobs, people are going to research you, the trust level. If you do not have a digital print, people are not necessarily going to trust you as much as someone who has a digital print and people can kind of assess who you are through that. Yeah. And that's even just, if it's, a doc- it's so funny because even if it's a doctored 
version, digital version, right? Because obviously my LinkedIn is going to tell a story that I have thought about. Yeah. You know, it's going to portray how I want to portray myself in that moment and the companies that I'm targeting or the industry that I'm targeting in that moment. You know, of course, me as a person, there are multiple other facets and that's one facet, but people still want to see that facet yeah. just to get an idea and to get a glimpse of who you could be as a person. Yeah. So I think for me, it's very important to understand that. And I feel like people understanding that aspect, understanding that we, because we do live in a digital world, everything you build is very much digital, has to be digital. Unless if you want to have a bigger impact, if you want to impact as many people as possible, if you want your message to be very much understood and spread in the way that you want it to be spread. Because at the end of the day, you could be building something amazing that is very much just about in-person initiatives or, you know, group communities and meetings and all this kind of stuff. But the message, what you're doing, how people perceive mm-hmm. you, if you want to have a control over that, if you want to have the right message out there, you have to propagate it in a way. And the only way to do that is to kind of be digital, have a space where people can come and see what you are about what you do and who you are. And nowadays it's very much digital space. I think understanding that would actually encourage people to just come and see themselves as tech entrepreneurs, as people who have the capacity of working in the tech space or just in general, not just in the tech space, but just kind of go for more companies, broaden their horizon of what is possible for them as a career. I think you bring an interesting comment there when we were talking about scale. At the end of the day, it's about scale, right? Like I could do something here in Montreal that's going to be very important and impactful in Montreal or within my circle of friends, or if I do it physically, locally, without any digital sort of presence. But the moment it goes online and the moment it becomes digital, it just opens the door to so many much more people, right? They can contribute, they can listen. You're just basically scaling what you are doing at a global level. And I think that is the power of the internet and that's the power of technology, one of it. And then to add on to your second comment, I agree with you that if you can sort of create an, an online presence or a digital presence where you talk not only about yourself, but about what interests you and such, then gives you the ability to go outside of your everyday job and to start building other things for yourself, whatever it might be, whether it's like a business, whether it might be a passion project or a nonprofit. But I think it will enable us to really stretch, you know, because we're not just one person. I'm not just the Michaela doing my job at work. I like there's so many other things I could be doing with my life as well. And with the online platform, you get access to that. So then how did you move from that first hackathon where you were like, oh my God, there is a demand for this. We didn't realize how much people were interested to Angel Hack. Angel Hack was actually, it was one of the two kind of organizations that were the most prevalent when it comes to hackathons. So it was Angel Hack and uh, Major League Hacking. They kind of mentored the CEO kind of mentored my two friends who were the co-founders of the nonprofit. Surely over the next two years, we kind of started to become a competitors of theirs in a way. 
not a competitor, but we're just in the same space and we're growing fast and we're making noise. When I ended up leaving from the company Warhacks, the nonprofit, I was looking at what my next step would be. And I really wanted to figure out a way to be able to have a direct impact in Africa. So I wanted to maybe bring hackathons or just something else back home, finding a way to bring it to some country in Africa and just test how things would be difficult. And I sent a LinkedIn message to the CEO of Injahak because at the end of the day, Injahak was maybe the only company that had found a way to be profitable through these kind of events, through hackathons. And I wanted to ask her some questions and learn a little bit more from her experience as a founder, as a female founder, and the difficulties that she had at the beginning when she wanted to build something. And she responded and she actually offered me a job. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. She actually offered me a job and it was... Wait, so when you messaged her, had you ever met her in person? No, I've never met her in person. Or I guess maybe had she heard of you like through the work you had done? Yeah, obviously, like through Warehacks. One time I got on a call that she was having with the two co-founders of Warehacks. I had talked to her for like maybe 10 minutes and it was like like in the first year and the first few months of of Warehacks, right? But I had never had any kind of interactions with her before. But I knew of her and obviously she knew of us because she knew of Warehacks and I was pretty visible in the company and obviously I mean when I introduced myself I reintroduced myself as you know Giselle from Warehacks and then I'm leaving and I'm thinking of building something back in Africa and I wanted to kind of be able to talk to her to ask her some questions for some advice and things like that she sent me towards an initiative that was uh, happening in Africa and that I should apply to but she also said that she had a new opening at the company and she really thought that would be perfect for it I got into it so it's like it was an assistant project manager job there. That was in October 2016. I was doing it part-time for the first three months because I was actually working at another company. So basically times were hard financially when I was with Warehacks. It was really hard to find, you know, a sustainable business model as a nonprofit and to be able to figure that out. So the the two years at Warehacks were very difficult. (laughs) You learn a lot. Like you learn a lot. They were difficult financially. And when I left, one of my friends that I had worked with during my time at Injahak, we actually volunteered together on an event and he really liked my work ethic during that time. So it was a volunteering thing we did together. He really liked my work ethic. And when I left and I was free, he told me there was this new initiative that was coming into Montreal and he really wanted me to work with him. This is why I always tell people volunteering can be life-changing in a way. And it can save you when you least expect it because at the end of the day, had I not done this volunteering work, Sydney, my friend, would not have come to me and offered me this opportunity, this job, which has kind of saved me financially after my time at Injahak. So it was an initiative around AI at the time where Montreal was pushing and is still pushing to become the artificial intelligence hub in the world. And so I was working with him on a AI initiative that was going to put Montreal on the map from a global perspective with the mm-hmm. XPRIZE Foundation. And so I was working part-time for that and part-time for Injahak for three months, for four months, I think maybe more and then I got like permanent residency issues so I had to go 
<laughs> girl i think that's another thing that we often don't think about yeah i think that what you and i both have in common is that we're somehow very idealistic in the way that we think you know so i think that we both like to think that anything is possible and you can explore and you can do anything especially when you have grown up in multiple countries and you have been exposed to the world so you think that the world is as open as it is open in your mind no, no. <laughs> the immigrant life is yo you have limits the same but then life hits you and you're like oh papers matter <laughs> yes. institutions are very much there as limitations you know so I had to go and I was actually really scared because I was like oh wow I have to go back home I have to go back to France which is something I never thought I would have to do to be honest I didn't want to come back there was a reason why I left <laughs> I was like hell no but I talked about it with Angel Hack and actually they said it was perfect because they had been looking for a regional manager for Europe for a very long time and they thought I'll be perfect for it so it just kind of everything lined up Yo, aligned Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything aligned. Sometimes it's just, I have been very lucky during my time in the tech space because things lined up. But lucky in the way that Oprah says, right? So preparations meets, like you prepare and it's just when things come, you're able to be recognized for it and just take advantage of the opportunity. Preparation meets opportunity, right? So that's yeah. luck. Not luck in the sense it just comes out of the thing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like you say you got lucky, but you hustled a lot. and yeah. I think you made a lot of sacrifices oh, that yeah. a lot of people wouldn't have been, wouldn't have done. And I wouldn't oh, have, you know. Listen, um, <laughs> a lot of sacrifices, yes. My time at Angel at Warehouse and like Montreal was tough. And it, like people don't understand. Like there were times I didn't have food. There were times I was actually bringing home food from hackathons so I could survive. But I was so passionate about what we were doing. I just believed so much in what we're doing I was inspired every single day by the vision by the people I was working with a vision of the world and what in my mind I saw as a way to have an impact a real impact on where the world was going where the society was going and I just I didn't care. I would just bring food from hackathons and just like, you know, like it's very not a lot a day and like, you know, expanded for a few days and at the free food at McGill, find an apartment, you know, like a one bedroom apartment where the living room has been split in two. So we three living in a one bedroom apartment so I can pay like $350 a month only in rent. Like I was ready to do anything to make it work. I mean, it, it was a huge toll because obviously, to be honest, I think I might have been the only one in the company that was in that kind of situation, which takes a toll mentally. When you're put in a position where you're given agency where you matter, like, why would you not be in a space where your opinion, your vision, your hustle matters as a person, as opposed to just working for a company where well, you might be a number or why? You, I mean, you matter, but you don't really matter. As if, I don't know if you mean, you know what I mean? In the sense of since the moment I started working, I've always been at decision making level, worked with a nonprofit to so starting something or being initiatives or just giving the freedom to experiment yeah. and to push yourself and to learn more and that having an impact direct impact on a company 
I love being in this space. That's, I think, one of the reasons why I love working for startups, early stage startups, where there's not a ton of people. And when you're just pushed hard. So going back to Intrahakti, I got the regional manager position for Europe, and which was great because then I could come back to French or something as opposed to be like, I'm coming empty. And I have to try to find a job in France. Oh my gosh, no. Yeah, no. So that's kind of what I've been doing for the past two years now, organizing entrepreneur hackathons around Europe so we can find the startups and entrepreneurs that are going to come into our acceleration program, going to be able to develop and support through that. One of the things I love the most about Europe is that it's very different. So you get from an economical perspective, you get everything. From a conflict perspective, you get kind of not everything. It's not like you're like open warfare, but you get very much countries that are very much stable to countries that are not as stable politically. Countries that are very diverse to countries that are not diverse at all. (laughs) You get to kind of have a small sample of a lot of type of society that you see around the world. And for me, that's so interesting because then you get to uh, learn about the startup ecosystems of these countries and how they've grown, what has made them grow mature and even see the efforts of a lot of the stakeholders on the ground when it's very much early stage kind of startup ecosystems to when it's already mature and what's happening over there. And you're able to kind of study a bit more what's needed what works and what doesn't work and why a country like Finland very much youth propelled startup ecosystem youth at the core of the startup ecosystem is the way it is as opposed to another country that is not just as youth centric I find that super interesting from a culture change perspective I want to be able to figure out how do you create and bring to maturity an ecosystem a startup ecosystem when I look at Africa for example where we have like 60% of our population that is like under 16 or around 16 year olds. How do you create that enormous workforce? And how do you bring that to a level where they're entrepreneur in their mindset, intrapreneurs, just people who are able to adapt to the changes in society and adapt in a way that they see opportunity and go for that. Even if they come from very like extreme poverty, how do you bring a change in culture a change in mindset for our people. I mean, I don't live in Africa, so it's not like you can study there. And a lot of the ecosystems are not as mature as other ecosystems around the world. So what I can do is just kind of study here in Europe and just kind of try to see some of the parallels and some of the things that worked or not. So that when it's time for me to go back home or have some type of initiatives back in a country in Africa, probably Rwanda, how can you support that? How can you make it work? Actually, I think I have a guy like that on LinkedIn. I'll go check it out. <laughs> but somebody who is in the startup ecosystem in Rwanda who like you might be able to talk to and just connect with and run some ideas through the person, you know? So what do you love about your job right now? I mean, whenever I'm at a hackathon, I feel like I'm... Well, about where you are, I guess. I'm servicing people. I love that. Like at the end of the day, you can't patronize taking a weekend off to invest in yourself. That's for me is incredible to have these people coming from so many different backgrounds, whether it's a social backgrounds, you know, race and economics or whatever, or, you know, uh, skills and coming together to be able to build because they want to be able to find a solution to a challenge they experience so just they're just interesting and curious i 
get passionate. I really I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about people who are willing to invest in themselves and invest in themselves, not necessarily knowing whether that's something for them. You know, they're just putting themselves in a situation, an environment that they've never been into before, or just like they want to be able to meet people who are coming with a different perspective and who can help them in their search for a solution to something that is affecting them. And there is no better environment, in my opinion, than that. I just get always very much fueled by this type of energy. My mind shifted the first time I, I like when I organized our first hackathon. My view of the world, of what's possible, of what I'm capable of, and what kind of change I can have in the world really shifted on that one single weekend. I had never had never been in a space that did that to me. And I'm a black African woman who's been raised in a very much white majority system, went to white majority school, all that kind of thing. And in one weekend, the view I had of myself and the type of impact I could do on the world, the type of things I could accomplish by myself and with people just changed in one single weekend. And that for me is incredibly powerful. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about bringing more diversity into this type of spaces, because truly it is really just about changing mindsets and bringing a space where people can see more options, options they've never seen for themselves or ways of doing things that they've never thought just because they were so focalized on one way of doing something. I love that energy. And I mean, startups as well in general, I love this type of ecosystem because for me, that's just kind of what it brings. Even if there's politics in like startups, it's not the same type of politics. I always feel like maybe it's the only environment where I can truly be myself. Even if I have experienced issues related to people, the way that I was perceived or discriminatory stuff based on the fact that I'm black. and that Like racism woman. and sexism. Yeah, I've experienced those things in the startup ecosystem. It's not saying that I, I haven't experienced that, but I still do feel like I can be myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. As much as I can be myself in these type of systems. I don't have to, you know, to abide by a code of, of dress yeah. or the way I can wear my hair or all this kind of stuff. I don't have to abide by it. And at the end of the day, that's like, it's very trivial, but it's so important. It's very important. Yeah. It's so important. I really do feel like this is a space that not only empowered me and gave me the space to be myself in spite of all of the isms that are very much present in this space because it's very much kind of a representative of the society we live in as well. Like it's not saying it's perfect yeah. at all, but I feel like I'm freer here than I would be if I was in a corporate company. Yeah, I think definitely your personality and the way that you like to work, it would be a little bit tough, especially if you go back to the point that you made earlier about agency and ownership and knowing that the decisions that you make matter and that they're going to have an impact, you're able to see it right away. Whereas let's say for me, I work in a company with like 80,000 people, more actually. There are processes in place for everything. And part of the challenges, part of the things that frustrate me sometimes about my job is that I'm doing like this little tiny piece and sometimes I'm like does it matter or what sort of impact am I having but I think it goes back to sort of identifying as well what's your purpose within that role or, or within that organization so for me for example I'm also the only black the only black woman let alone African in like a team of how many are we like 200 and so it's every time telling them like yep I'm here <laughs> I'm present <laughs> 
you know, like, oh, you have an interesting background and forcing people to say my name properly because <laughs> they would rather not say it at all or they would rather butcher it and say like, no, but that's, oh, I hate that comment. I'm sorry. People learn exactly like some language from Lord of the Rings and some language from Star Trek or whatever, but you can't learn to pronounce other people's cultures' names. That's ridiculous. People who actually exist. Yeah. Before I used to laugh it off and I used to be like, haha, whatever. But now I'm like, learn how to say my name. I do it nicely and politely still, but I will say it's not that hard to say. And I will sort of say it slowly. And then I will say, try. And then they will try. And I will say, you see, it wasn't the end of the world because they trivialize it. But at the same time, then when they introduce themselves, they always say their first name and their last name. Yeah. So it's like you you saying your first name and your last name, some French Quebecois name or English name. I don't care. But you think it's okay to just say my first name. Why? So every time I'm on like a new team or a new project or new people, it will eventually come up and I will, they will eventually learn how to say my name. And it's just a way to be like, yo, I'm present. I'm here. I'm doing my work. I'm showing up like you guys learn how to say my name. So what are some of the challenges that you have encountered and what motivates you? How do you deal with it? What are the first challenges? So it's talked about money first. Like it was hard financially oh, yeah. and you just kind of coast, like not coasted, but you made it through <laughs> to the other side where you're more through. stable now. <laughs> yeah, I made it through. And to be honest, I'm not necessarily sure that a lot of people are able to live the way that I lived. But that's also kind of a testimony to what people are willing to sacrifice. Some people are willing to sacrifice a lot, but also I'm not necessarily very materialistic. So it just didn't, didn't matter that much to me. Yeah, I think it's for you. It was like, part of your purpose like you, of- when people talk about purpose driven I think for you you had found out like okay this is supposed to be part of my path yeah. so I'm really feel driven by this so I need to just figure out how to make it work yeah but I also have realized because of that experience I've also realized that finances are one of my biggest triggers when it comes to mental health because you know coming from very much very very humble beginnings and just having struggle with finances my whole entire life because of you know situation of my family and stuff like that I mean it's not realized because we know like when you're in this situation you know when you do not have to think about money it leaves so much space in your your brain to think about something else and a lot of times from creativity it's just being more creative in what you're trying to build or just being have better thoughts and more strategic whatever your work is very much impacted positively by you not having to worry about finances and sorry and you see that as well when people when we're talking about the glamorization of entrepreneurship yeah. or why people choose to stay in jobs that they don't like yeah. uh, very much it's driven by money yeah. because they want the financial stability and for for whatever reasons which is which is fair yeah right? But allowing yourself to be creative and allowing yourself to, to go out there and explore comes most of the time with a financial cost, right? Yes. And it creates a lot of anxiety and yeah. Yeah, even though I went through that and, you know, it's not like if I, when I build my own thing in the future one day, I mean, I know what I'm going to have to sacrifice at the beginning in terms of, you know, like money and all that stuff. But that's one of the reasons why I think it's very important to be very much aware of that when you negotiate your contract and you very much, you know, do not settle for less money just supports you and supports your mental health i mean i 
I've realized that over the time. But yeah, no, like the finances were a huge problem to me. One of the reasons why I left the first company, just because it brought to the fourth a lot of other problems with the team or in terms of the decisions I had to make. At one point, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't struggle after two years, you know, after a year and a half of no money at all and having to find jobs on the side. Like I was working like 85 to 90 hours a week and I'd never had a weekend because I was always doing it. I always had to do something within the company or with the finding job when they're finding money. And that truly impacted how my relationship with the, the team that was there, that was left, moved. Because I think some people were able to not worry about that, but I had to. And it just yes. brought on other issues. Yeah, It contributed to the downfall of, uh, like, to me leaving the company. And ultimately you have to live, you know, like you're a grown woman, like hope you have goals yeah. <laughs> in life. Yeah. Know, so. Obviously, I think I took it that way, you know, the stereotype of the angry black woman, that has nothing to do with that. Like, I feel like sometimes when you're somebody, a woman of color that is very ambitious and that is very um, expressive, straightforward, straightforward or expressive, that's taken to that side of things that's interpreted as that as opposed to somebody who might be like me but just isn't like if it's a male or something it's not going to be perceived that way as angry yeah they're just going to be perceived as assertive yeah you know, you're going to be aggressive, but yeah. they're going to be assertive. Like, yeah. So I've I've encountered that in my past. I've never experienced that many issues, actually. I think, I think I've been lucky in this way. I think this is where I think I've been lucky with who I worked with, because all of the organizations I work with, they're very much aware of diversity. And I think it's also because you're working with younger people. The fact that you're working with younger people and the environment that you're working in is open and is open to change and just the way that they think, you know? So I think that helps a lot because for me, sometimes I've stopped counting. Huh? Like, I don't know. I don't care anymore if it's because am I young? Is it because I'm, am I black? Is it because I'm a woman? I don't care no more. I just know it's messed up. And then I'm just like, well, it's one of these three reasons. Because <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed this first part with Giselle and how she got her start in the tech space. Join us next week for part two, where we continue speaking about our experiences and the need for more black people in this industry in order to gain diverse voices. What did you think of the conversation that you just heard? Don't hesitate to leave us comments on the Facebook group or on the website, zazalikmar.com. As the old adage goes, sharing is caring. So if you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends, like, and subscribe. Until next time, keep striving, keep thriving, and keep shining. Keep shining.